Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Thanks to ZipRecruiter for supporting Muller, she wrote, hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash AG. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., and with me today is Jordan Coburn. Hello. Jaleesa Johnson is not feeling well today, so we're going to cover this part eight. Um, this is our special coverage of the redacted Mueller report, and today we're going to cover pages 144 through 173. It's a big chunk of the report. Uh, and this is section B of part four, entitled Post-Election and Transition Period Contacts. We spent the last few episodes covering part A, which was all about the contacts with Russians during the campaign. So that took, what, six episodes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we're going to try to cover all the post-election activity in one shot. So, yeah. Buckle up, you guys. Uh, and also, I just want to let you know, we have the window open today, so you might hear some nature and birds. We thought it appropriate because, you know, it's soothing. So if you hear some <laughs> birds in the background, that's what's going on uh, with our with our magical studio for today. So almost immediately, guys, we're just going to jump in here. Almost immediately after Trump won the election, multiple attempts were made by Russia to establish contacts with the Trump administration and the transition team. And these attempts were made through Kislyak and other individuals who sought contacts through Americans not formerly tied to the campaign or the transition team. And Mueller says here that he could not establish that the contacts constituted coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in its efforts to interfere in the election. So, we're at subsection one now, and that covers immediate post-election activity, including outreach from the Russian government and high-level encouragement of contacts through alternative channels. Not like uh, postmodern MTV alternative channels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, alternative other channels. Mm-hmm. Um, then sub-subsection A, which we call underpants. So underpants A begins at 3 a.m. on election night when Hope Hicks gets a phone call on her personal cell from a person who sounded foreign, she says, but was calling from a D.C. area code. And she had a tough time understanding, but got the words Putin call. And then she told them to send an email. Putin call. Uh, so she like got Putin Tang. Yeah. <laughs> Putin Tang. She got the email the next morning and it was from uh, Sergei. Uh, let's see. Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov. 
Uh, and he's an official at the Russian embassy. And I've kind of figured when I saw the D.C. area code mentioned here that it was a Russian embassy. And the subject line in the email said, message from Putin, in which he offered his congratulations and uh, said he looked forward to working with Trump on improving relations with Russia. So she forwarded that to Kush. And uh, we call Kushner Kush and asked him to look at it, saying she didn't want to get duped, you know, but she also didn't want to blow off Putin. So she didn't want to respond thinking it was Putin and then it was not stupid or something. Right. Or she didn't want somebody like like, you know, like a some sort of troll sending an email saying, hey, this is Putin. Congratulations. And then it being like Bob down the street. So Kush told Congress um, when he testified that he called Symes. That's the guy from the Center for National Interest, Dimitri Symes, the Mayflower Hotel guy. And he asked the name of the ambassador. He's like, hey, what's the ambassador's name? Uh, Just to double check. And then Hicks told um, or he conveyed the email to transition officials. She she sent it to them. And Trump and Putin spoke by phone five days later in the presence of transition team members, including Flynn. Mm -hmm. And they'll get into the details about how that whole meeting came about a little bit later in the episode in the Mueller report and in the episode (laughs) because it's an episode about the Mueller report. Here we are. And we are following it linearly. And there's a couple of questions that I had in this particular section about why some things were positioned in, in certain ways. But I guess it all kind of makes sense in the end. So keep in mind, Hope Hicks recently testified to Congress again, but refused to answer over 150 questions from during the transition and her time in the White House, claiming something called absolute immunity, which is not a thing. And the footnotes at the bottom of the page, uh, which is we're on page 145 here, they refer to the 302s from Hicks and Flynn. Statements to Congress from Hicks and Cush and the emails and letters in question. So Mueller had all that. Hmm. And then on to part B. This is the high level encouragement of contacts through alternative channels. And this includes outreach from Dmitriev, Prince, Nader, Kislyak, Gorkov, Avin, and Dvorkovich. <laughs> Sounds like a really fucked up law firm. Yeah, I don't recognize Avin. Yeah, I didn't either. And we'll get into who he is. Uh, he, he's a Russian national who heads Alpha Bank. Uh, and and how he this is this whole first section is how he tried to explain to Mueller the flurry of Russian activity during the transition. He told Mueller that he's one of about 50 super rich Russian business guys who regularly meet with Putin. And these guys are often referred to as oligarchs. <laughs> I hope you defined it like that. Yeah. So remember earlier this year, too, when Oleg Deripaska was trying to get sanctions lifted on him and he complained about being called an oligarch? Mm-hmm. I prefer billionaire. <laughs> So this uh, Peter Oven said he met with Putin quarterly uh, and all the oligarchs, and he took those meetings seriously. Probably, good idea. Probably a good <laughs> idea. Uh, understanding that any suggestions Putin made were implicit directives and there would be negative consequences for Avin if, right. if he didn't follow through. That whole Some meeting. wink and the nod thing, right? So, and so um, he went to the fourth quarter meeting in 2016. This is the end of the year. Um, and it was, as it was customary, that quarterly meeting was preceded by a preparatory meeting with Putin's chief of staff, Anton Vaino. Okay. First time I've heard that name, too. Yes. Uh, and so I guess it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you think about the governance and, and the situation, they have this quarterly meeting with all the rich dudes and Putin. And then before they have a, a prep meeting with Putin's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one-on-one in in the one-on-one meeting, he had a so eventually it gets to this point where Putin and Avin have a one-on-one meeting, and Putin told Avin to brace himself for Russian sanctions, including some against Alpha Bank, and he also spoke of the difficulty he had getting in touch with the Trump transition team, and didn't know whom to formally speak with to get through to them. Putin said this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Uh, Avin says that Putin says this. Right. And Avin told Putin he would try to get in touch with the incoming administration to try to protect Russia and Alpha Bank against sanctions. Okay. So we have, Almost getting there. We have one outreach so far to mm-hmm. try to get to the transition team to stop sanctions. The ones that Obama was going to impose probably for Russian election interference. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up doing that. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, the report then refers to Volume 1, Part 4B5 and uh, piv- uh, pivots to Kamil Dmitriev. And keep in mind... Then eventually, Kislyak did speak to Flynn about sanctions twice, and Flynn told at least, and, and Flynn told him to tell Putin not to reciprocate to the sanctions and that, you know, mm-hmm. everything would be cool. And those conversations were ordered released by the judge in the Flynn case, Sullivan, but the government told them not to release those. And they hadn't really publicly admitted that they even took place. And we've been talking about this, however they do later in the report. Mm-hmm. They talk about these phone calls, so we'll get there. And on page 147, Mueller says Avin's description of his interactions with Putin are consistent with the behavior of Kirill Dmitriev, a Russian national who heads the Russia Sovereign Wealth Fund, known as RDIF, and, he, and he's also close to Putin. And Dmitriev was the Putin cutout that attended the Seychelles meeting, which is covered also later in this section. Uh, Dmitriev made several attempts to reach out to the Trump team after the election, <laughs> and one of which was he was contacted... Um, well, he contacted his friend from the UAE, George Nader, uh, and asked him to introduce him to the Trump transition team and Trump transition officials. And Nader eventually arranged the Seychelles meeting between Dmitriev, Prince, and Bannon. And Nader also introduced Dmitriev to Rick Gerson. That's the friend of Kushner, that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they worked on that proposal for reconciliation between U.S. and Russia, which Dmitriev said he cleared through Putin. And Garrison provided that proposal to Kushner before the inauguration, and Kush gave copies to Bannon and Rex Tillerson. We'll get to the details of that soon, too. Huh. So it seems like when Putin has those meetings with these oligarchs, probably at every individual meeting, he's telling them, I don't have a direct person to get in contact with to talk about this, (laughs) meaning try, please. Right. It seems like there were multiple ways and multiple targets that they were trying to infiltrate into Mm -hmm. not just the campaign, which we finished that section, but now the transition team, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Especially with the impending sanctions coming. So, yeah. And how, and so this actually made it to Rex Tillerson and uh, Bannon. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's confusing to me that that's okay. (laughs) Right. That that potentially is going to shape their actual policy platforms. Yeah. Or at least their back channel. Or at least their reaction to the sanctions. Right. Because they're not. Mm -hmm. These people aren't registered with FARA when they're talking and doing all these no, things, No, and they aren't right? part of a current administration either, which violates the yeah. Logan Act. And he never even talks about violations of the Logan Act in this report at yeah. all. Uh, and that could be counterintelligence stuff. This might have all gone to counterintelligence. Would they, would they need to have formally registered as a foreign lobbyist, basically, for what they did here? Yeah, I would think so. That's what I would think, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But maybe if he's not officially president yet or something, then it doesn't like. Yeah. I but even know. lobbyists who aren't don't have anything to do with totally. the president have to register. Totally, like totally. Greg Craig is on trial right now because he was pushing the Ukraine Tymoshenko yeah. whitewashed report um, that Skadden Arps something meager and flom, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Skadden Arps. I don't know. You know, the Skadden yeah, yeah, Arps yeah, guys. Definitely. And Vanderswan put together with Gates and Manafort. And that's why he was part of that whole thing. So, right. And he was supposed to have to register as a foreign agent. And that's all he did was try to get this report to some folks in the U.S. So, mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm. And he's on trial. So it's weird that they're not, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if this is just all hidden and wrapped up in the counterintelligence stuff, which we don't know anything about right now. Mm-hmm. But we'll find out, hopefully, through Congress 
Um, they're working on it, quote unquote. Congress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Mueller continues here about who Dmitriev is and, and how if Russian, he's the Russian wealth fund, the RDIF, they co-invested with the United Arab Emirates Sovereign Wealth Funds. Uh, and Dmitriev, that's how Dmitriev regularly met with Nader. Um, and Nader is a senior advisor to MBZ in connection with the RDIF's dealings with the UAE. So that's a lot of letters. Uh, MBZ is Mohammed bin Zayed. He is the head of the UAE, right? Because we know Mohammed bin Saw mm-hmm. or Mohammed bin Salman is Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. crown prince. But this is MBZ. And um, Nader and Dmitriev worked together a lot because his Russian wealth fund and the United Arab Emirates Russian wealth fund invested in a lot of shit together. So... Um, Mutual interests. Yes. Then uh, this is interesting. Nader developed contacts with both presidential campaigns during the 2016 election and kept Dmitriev apprised of his efforts. So right there, um, he was trying to develop, Nader was trying to develop contacts with the Clinton campaign. Mm -hmm. And according to Nader, Dmitriev said Russia's preference was Trump and asked Nader to help him meet members of the Trump campaign. Um, So my assumption here, because it never really comes up again, is that you know, Nader developed these contacts with both campaigns to put his eggs in both baskets until somebody said, we don't care about this one and we care about this one. Yeah. So I think that's that's probably why it's even mentioned here, um, because Mueller has said explicitly that there were no contacts or coordination or collusion or anything between yeah. the Clinton campaign. Policy suggestion. Right. Yeah. And the Russians. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, According to Nader, Dmitriev said Russia's preference was Trump, as I said, and he asked Nader um, to help him meet members of the Trump campaign. This is Dmitriev. Um, Then there's a redacted sentence for grand jury material and a statement that Nader did not introduce Dmitriev to anyone associated with the Trump campaign before the election. And then there's an entire paragraph redacted for grand jury material again. Hmm. And then the footnotes show Nader's 302s, but nothing from Dmitriev, which makes me think the grand jury stuff is Dmitriev's testimony. But, I mean... I don't know. It's it's hard to guess. Yeah, I don't know either, but I know that his testimony is a big deal. It would be. And I don't know if we could have gotten Kirill Dmitriev because, you know, was he in the United States? Why would he even help? I don't know. Uh, Mueller then talks about Eric Prince, who, as we know, was associated with a bunch of Trump officials, including Trump, Bannon, Jr., and Roger Stone. And that's according to Prince's and Bannon's 302s, per the last unredacted footnote. And Prince has no formal role in the campaign, by the way, but he issued policy papers on trade and election interference to Bannon. Policy papers on election interference. I I wish he would have expanded more on that Uh, to Bannon. And um, he frequently visited the transition offices at Trump Tower, mostly to meet with Bannon, but sometimes with Flynn and others. So that's kind of vague. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prince and Bannon discussed who should fill key national security positions. And although Prince wasn't formally affiliated with the transition, Nader and Redacted received assurances that he was a trusted associate. Hmm. I don't know who Redacted is. MBZ? I don't know. Yeah. So now that Mueller has explained who Dmitriev is, he goes on to discuss post-election contacts with the incoming Trump administration. We're on page 149, but most of this is redacted due to investigative techniques, and it sounds like a spy novel. So check this out. Soon after midnight on election night, (laughs) Dmitriev messaged Redacted, who was traveling to New York to attend a 2016 World Chess Championship. (laughs) Redacted, Dmitry Peskov, the Russian Federation press secretary who was also attending the event. That's the guy who Sater was talking to. Yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. He's the guy that Cohen and Sater tried to contact for help with the Trump Tower Moscow. 
And then there's a few more redacted sentences. So midnight is a chess tournament. And then approximately at 2.40 a.m. on November 9th, 2016, news reports stated that Clinton had called Trump to concede. At redacted, redacted, wrote to Dmitriev, Putin has won. God. I know. So somebody texted Dmitriev saying Putin has won. Now, after Trump was elected, after Clinton conceded. Now, you may not all remember this, but NBC reported this past April that Trump was invited to attend the chess championship that year. And Mueller asked him about it in his written questions. So it was a, of import. Hmm. And Trump told Mueller he didn't attend, but he was invited. And they asked him earlier in 2016 if he wanted to host the event at Trump Tower. Dude, is nothing sacred anymore? Now chess is a place where shit goes down? I know. It makes me sad. Yeah. Uh, so the president of the event, Kirsan Ilyumzhanov. Ilyumzhanov. Okay, he's a sanctioned Russian oligarch. Probably goes to those oligarch parties. Uh, And it's been reported that Putin used the World Chess Federation and its president to serve as a covert diplomatic vehicle for the Kremlin. (laughs) What? (laughs) So these redactions could indicate that the person who sent the Putin has won text may have been a Russian agent under surveillance by the intelligence community. Yeah. Because it's for investigative purposes. So... Later that morning, after the election, Dmitriev contacted Nader and said he wanted to come meet with key people. And later that day, he flew to New York for the chess tournament. And Peskov traveled separately and did the same, went to the chess tournament. Dmitriev asked Nader if any Trump people would be there and also asked him to invite Kushner so he could meet him. Uh, Nader did not pass the message along to anyone, although one World Chess Federation official recalled hearing from an attendee that Trump himself had stopped by the tournament, but Mueller could not establish that Trump or anyone from the campaign or transition team attended. Hmm. Uh, So why did Mueller bring it up? Probably because he knows somebody was there and he just didn't have the evidence to say so. That's what I'm guessing. Otherwise, why bring up the whole chess thing in the first place? So Nader told Mueller that Dmitriev continued to press him to set up a meeting with transition officials and focused on Kush and Jr. And that Dmitriev said, uh, or Dmitriev said that the meeting would make history. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure has. <laughs> it's in the Mueller report. So all this makes you wonder about Eric Prince telling everyone that the Seychelles meeting with Dmitriev was just happenstance, right? Think of all this that they went through to set this shit up. And they didn't even really talk about anything is what uh, Eric Prince said. Right. So they just all happened to be there despite all of this setup. Eric Prince is totally lying, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. why he hasn't been charged. Um, there's another redacted sentence here for grand jury material, but Nader was unable to set up any meetings with Dmitriev and the Trump folks during that trip to New York. But Dmitriev kept poking at Nader, and in December, um, he asked for a meeting in January or February, and that evidence came from text messages from Dmitriev to Nader, according to footnotes. Uh, and as we know, Nader's phones were all confiscated <laughs> because they eventually found porn on them. Child pornography. Jeez. And uh, before we get to the Seychelles meeting, since since then we have to remember that Nader has recently been arrested for those child pornography charges. He, the, he was charged under seal last year shortly after he gave all this information to Mueller and then skipped country. Um, and he was arrested the minute he set foot back in the United States. So that's what's going on with George Nader. He is another pedophile that is Trump is friends with. Awesome. <laughs> All right, on to page 151 about Eric Prince Dmitriev and the Seychelles meeting. Uh, that's the one Prince said meant nothing, yet Mueller dedicates six pages to it in his report. Totally happenstance means nothing. And if you've been listening to Mueller, uh, Mueller she wrote, you know all about this meeting. We've talked about it at length. So Nader communicated with Prince that Dmitriev wanted to meet with him and sent Prince Dmitriev's bio and a list of nice things Dmitriev said about Trump. <laughs> Look, he really likes Trump. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Prince opened the file. Uh, so Mueller knows Prince opened the file and read them within an hour from Trump, uh, within an hour from getting them. And he was at Trump Tower when he opened them and uh, told Mueller uh, he was at Trump Tower. Prince told Mueller he was at Trump Tower that day, meeting with Kellyanne Conway, Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin and others while waiting to meet with Bannon. Uh, Mueller says cell site evidence shows Prince remained at Trump Tower for about three hours that day. But Prince told Mueller he did not recall uh, whether or not he met with Bannon. Or that they discussed Dmitriev. Well, I can't imagine he was there for three hours, and if Bannon was there as well, he didn't meet. Yeah, or discuss that he was meeting with Dmitriev. Yeah. Or who Dmitriev was. And then there's a redacted grand jury sentence, and that could be Bannon's testimony. I don't know. But all that shit went down in early January uh, 2017. And by January 7th, Prince had booked a ticket to the Seychelles. Mm. And then the next day, Nader wrote Dmitriev saying he had a pleasant surprise for him, mm. and that he'd arranged for him to meet with Prince. And Nader invited Dmitriev to the Seychelles for January 12th, five days later. Can you imagine how much a ticket to the Seychelles on a five-day notice would cost? Yeah, I have no idea where the Seychelles are. Far and beautiful. Nice. Um, it's, that's just nuts. So the next day, Dmitriev asked Nader if the meeting would be worthwhile. Uh, and, and, and this seems to happen a lot in this, in this section. Everyone's like, is this guy worth your time? Is this guy a piece of shit? Who's this guy? Is he good or is he stupid? Uh, and Flynn does it with Kislyak, too. It's funny. Uh, so then, anyway, there's some redacted... Uh, someone whose name is redacted told Mueller Dmitriev wasn't enthusiastic about meeting with Prince, but Nader assured him that he wielded influence with the incoming administration. Uh, this guy is designated by Bannon to meet you. And remember how Prince was saying, I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, representing the Trump campaign? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, he was designated by Bannon. Uh, and and he said, I know him well, and he's very, very well connected, trusted by the new team. His sister is now the Minister of Education. That is Betsy DeVos, of course. Mm-hmm. So Nader told Mueller that Prince had led him to believe that Bannon was aware of the upcoming meeting, and Prince acknowledged it was right for Nader to think that Prince would pass information on to the transition team. But Bannon told Mueller that Prince did not tell him in advance about the Seychelles. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's why Prince, that's why Mueller was like, Prince was there for three hours, said he never met with Bannon. And then Bannon told Mueller he didn't meet with him and didn't tell him about the Seychelles meeting, which means they totally fucking met and talked mm-hmm. about the Seychelles meeting when he was at Trump Tower that day. Sounds like it. Uh, but he he doesn't acknowledge that. It might come up in the declinations um, in, in Section 5, which we'll go over next week. But on to page 153 in the Seychelles meeting. And we've heard all about this. Dimitriev, arri- Dimitriev arrived at the Four Seasons on January 11th. Very nice. Where Nader and MBZ were staying. MBZ was there at the hotel. But mm-hmm. he, he, I, I guess Not just at the actual meeting. Right. So Prince also arrived on the 11th. And Prince and Dimitriev met in Nader's villa for about 30 to 45 minutes. And Nader was there for that meeting. And then there's a redacted sentence for grand jury stuff, followed by, quote, Prince described the eight years of the Obama administration in negative terms and stated he was looking forward to a new era of cooperation and conflict resolution. So he's, that's what uh, Prince told Mueller. Mm-hmm. And according to Prince, he told Dimitriev that Bannon was effective and Prince provided policy papers to Bannon. So he's trying to, you know, say Bannon's got influence, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's a redaction sandwich. And the unredacted statement in the middle says Prince added he would tell Bannon about his meeting with Dmitriev, and if there's interest in continuing the discussion, Bannon would do so. Hmm. So this sort of kind of be like totally throw, throws in the face or you know defies the logic that that Bannon and and Prince didn't meet 
the day or the days leading up to him flying to meet in the Seychelles. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Especially with Bannon coming up at this meeting so often. And this is something I hadn't heard yet, but when Prince got back to his room after the meeting, how does Mueller know this? Uh, he learned that <laughs> he learned that Russia sent an aircraft carrier to Libya. And then Prince called Nader and asked for another meeting with Dmitriev, telling him Libya's off the table. And at the second meeting, Prince told Dmitriev the U.S. could not accept any Russian involvement in Libya because it would make the situation worse. Um, then there's a redacted sentence for grand jury stuff. And the footnote about this is partially redacted. But the unredacted part says that Prince denied whatever was redacted and said he was making these remarks to Dmitriev, not in an official capacity, but based on his experience as a formal naval officer. Hmm. So it seems there's some kind of interference uh, that he was, or inference that he was speaking on behalf of the incoming administration uh, in an official capacity, even though he told Mueller he was not. Yeah, but it's it's just one of those things where it's like if you were recommended by Bannon and you have a connection to that 100%. That's undeniable. Why are you there if you're not speaking on behalf of the right. administration? And I think that's kind of what Mueller's trying to and he's using, illustrate. Totally. And he's using words like we're looking forward to changing how we do conflict resolution and stuff. What, like as a private citizen, you're personally <laughs> looking forward to it as a formal naval officer? Right. Like, like I just want to tell you about Libya. From my experience of the Navy, we don't want it to escalate. Like, yeah. Who does that? Or to think they wouldn't take it as that, assuming the absolute best, which is like very hard to even go to that place with these people. I but know. yeah. Unfortunately, you need that. That you know mm-hmm. that uh, smoking gun sentence. Totally. Yeah. So after this second meeting, Dmitriev told Nader he was disappointed in the meetings for two reasons. First, he believed the Russians needed to be communicating with someone who had authority. And second, he had hoped to have a discussion of greater substance, like outlining a roadmap for countries, both countries to follow. And then there's a weirdly partially redacted sentence, which I'll just read to you. Quote, Dmitriev told Nader that redacted Prince's comments, redacted, redacted, were insulting, redacted. Hmm. And that's for grand jury material. So maybe he was just like, I don't like Prince. Prince is a dick. I want to talk to Bannon. Yeah. Or something like that. You know what I mean? Prince, to- Prince talked to Bannon. Bannon knows we're here. I want to talk to Bannon. Fuck this guy, he's a dick. Yeah. I wonder if it's because he was talking about foreign policy stuff, maybe saying like, yeah, like Libya's too messy, we're not going to get involved in Libya, or or just uh, maybe anti-Russian aggression sentiments or something. Yeah, or probably, my guess is is that Dmitriev and, and, you know, wanted him to stop sanctions from happening, and, and Prince was like... I don't, I, you know, I can try my best, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Yeah, like, or something to that effect. Like, I, you know, I can't convince the president or the incoming president to not put sanctions. And I have no control over the Obama administration. And it would be not correct for me to try to influence Mm -hmm. um, foreign policy before, you know, you know, during transition. Mm -hmm. Because we're not in office. Yeah. But maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> because weren't there uh, some sort of stories about them Googling the Logan Act? <laughs> oh, that rings a bell. I think it was McGann. I don't remember, though. Okay. I honestly think it was Don McGann, and I think it was Trying after. Trying to check themselves. Yeah. I think it was after they learned that Flynn lied to the FBI. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, because G- McGann had Googled about lying to the FBI and about the Logan Act. So that's funny. That is funny. Hmm. That's probably what this shit has to do with. Like, all of this policy influence. And later we talk about that. Uh, UN vote that they tried to influence mm-hmm. the Trump and the transition team tried to influence before he was president. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. Yeah. 
Googling the Logan Act. I'll tell you what's in it, buddy. <laughs> this is the shit you're not allowed to do yet. Somehow no one was charged with it. It's just weird. And I, I'm hoping that when we get to the declinations where Mueller says who wasn't charged for what and why, I hope he addresses the Logan Act. We'll find out. We'll find out. All right. So then within hours of that second meeting uh, where apparently Prince was a dick, Prince sent two texts to Bannon. But of course, they're not in communication about this meeting at all. Uh, but Mueller was unable to obtain the content of those. Uh, remember how I say that key piece of information isn't, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't able to obtain the content. And Mueller also did not identify ev- any evidence of communication between Prince and Dmitriev. So I'm wondering here if the office saw that there were text messages, but the content had been erased, or if they couldn't locate the messages at all. That was what I was wondering when I read this passage. Mm-hmm. Because in previous passages in the report, Mueller states specifically with the Corsi stuff, for example, that he was unable to find evidence that the messages existed at all. Or like when Corsi said he tweeted, he couldn't find any tweets, that there was any evidence that they existed. But here he says that there were messages, but he couldn't get the content. And that's a big difference. And the footnote for the statement about Prince sending text to Bannon, uh, texts to Bannon indicates that the source was call records between Prince and a name redacted for grand jury material which we know to be Bannon. (laughs) So Bannon must have testified that he received the messages and Mueller must have verified through call records, but the content had been erased. Mm -hmm. So this is another one of those pieces of evidence Mueller couldn't get Mm -hmm. because they were encrypted, erased, or otherwise destroyed. Then on the middle of page 155, regarding Prince's meeting with Bannon after he returned from the Seychelles, according to Prince uh, and his interview with the FBI, he told Nader he would inform Bannon about his discussions with Dmitriev and that someone within the Russian power structure wanted better relations with the Trump team. So he basically told Bannon, according to Prince's interview... Um, he says he told Bannon about about the, all the meetings and shit, but they seemed upset and Prince was a nobody, basically. <laughs> so Prince and Bannon met at Bannon's house in mid-January and, and he briefed him about the meeting. Prince told Mueller that he explained to Bannon that Dmitriev was the head of the Russian Wealth Fund and wanted to improve relations between Russia and the U.S. And Prince showed Mueller a screenshot of Dmitriev's Wikipedia page from January 16th and said he showed it to Bannon uh, and said that Bannon was not interested. But Bannon told Mueller he never discussed Dmitriev. He never discussed the wealth fund or any meetings with Prince at all. And sadly, Mueller couldn't determine who was lying because their messages had been erased. Mm. Uh, Prince's phone contained no text messages, even though his service provider records indicate that he and Bannon texted dozens of times. So that's this is exactly what I thought. So there's Mueller saying exactly what, what we were thinking, right? The messages existed, but they had been destroyed. So Prince denied deleting them and seemed surprised that he had no texts on his phone prior to March 2017. None. Hmm. Well, I don't know if this is the case, but there's a setting on your iPhone where it automatically deletes old things after like a year. Yeah. But that is, again, assuming the absolute best. Yeah. Well, he seems surprised. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he's got it set to do that, or maybe that's the default setting. Yeah, but it's looking uh it's looking more so that that's not the case. But Bannon's device also had no texts and Mueller mm. uh he told Mueller he didn't know where they were. Uh, <laughs> he didn't know why they weren't there. Bannon told Mueller he regularly used his Blackberry for work related communications but took no steps to preserve them. It's like, dude, you don't you don't have to take steps to not delete text messages. You just don't delete them. Yeah. But maybe maybe what happened here, I don't know. That's a benefit of the doubt. It's a huge benefit of the doubt thing. They just, they just and also, I've never heard erased. of Blackberries doing that. No. And I think it's true. a setting you have to, like, intentionally turn on, too, uh, which is a bad move on your part. 
I'm positive it's something you have to turn on, actually. So you have to opt into it. It's yeah. not a default. Yeah, you have to find it in your settings and intentionally do that. Interesting. Because that'd be really dumb, too, right? If they're like, <laughs> eh, it's fine. I'm just going to, on my work phone, in which I'm discussing crazy things all the time because of the nature of my work i don't need to save these just let the phone decide when the communications get deleted we're only running for president yeah none of these will come in handy in the Mm -hmm. future yeah that's just stupid all right guys hey we're gonna take a really super short quick break we'll be right back hey guys this is ag from muller she wrote and recently we hired a new team member and i have to tell you that the hiring process it's pretty cumbersome there's stacks of resumes from multiple job sites Uh, You have to sort through all of them and determine the minimum qualifications, and then trying to reconcile all those requirements amongst hundreds of job sites can be really daunting. But there's an easy way you can get it all done in one place by heading to ZipRecruiter.com slash AG. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, so you do not have to do it individually. Uh, I have experience that that is a pain in the butt. Uh, They then scan thousands of resumes to find people with your exact qualifications and invite them to apply to your job. But they don't stop there, because as the applications come in, ZipRecruiter has uh, this magical way of analyzing all of them, and they highlight the top candidates so you don't miss the perfect match. And it's so effective that four out of five employers, including myself, that use ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash AG. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash AG. Get all your hiring done in one place. You will be so happy about this. Again, it's ZipRecruiter.com slash AG. You'll be glad you did. All right, guys, welcome back. We are now at the bottom of page 156, and this is where we get to the contacts between Dmitriev and Kushner's buddy Rick Gerson. So Dmitriev was introduced to Gerson by Nader, and Gerson runs a hedge fund in New York and told Mueller he had no formal role in the transition and no involvement in the Trump campaign other than casual chats with Kush about it. So Gerson runs a hedge fund in New York and told Mueller he had no formal role in the transition and no involvement in the Trump campaign other than casual chats with Kush about it. <laughs> Cat, like cat. I just imagine, like you know, the beginning of the sweater song. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Wait, is it the sweater song? Weezer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they're all just ding that ding beam, ding, beam, and beam. they're like, "Hey man, you going to the party tonight? Yeah, bro, it's gonna be great. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Where's the beer? This is just what I imagine Gerson yes. and uh, and Kush doing. Yeah, totally. That's a great image. I think I think that's actually them in the beginning. of yeah. the Weezer song. Yeah, it was very uh, forward thinking of of Weezer. That's why everyone loves them. <laughs> very precious. <laughs> very precious. <laughs> yes. Uh, but but then after the election, Gerson assisted the transition team by arranging meetings for Trump folks with Tony Blair and a UAE delegation led by MBZ. And Tony Blair is the former prime minister of the UK. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I grew up on that guy. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I that's did. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dmitry and Gerson. Also, that's a huge overstatement. I recognize his name from my childhood is all I meant. <laughs> We grew up together. My buddy and me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and Gerson first met to discuss business opportunities between the RDIF, uh, Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and Gerson's hedge fund because Dmitriev wanted to improve economic cooperation between Russia and the U.S. and thought Gerson would be a good contact. Yeah, they all want to make money. Mm -hmm. Gerson actually told Dmitriev he would meet with him, but they had to keep it secret because of the bad look of holding the Trump or the meetings before Trump took power. 
So Gerson told him he would ask Cush and Flynn who the key people would be on security and economic matters. So he knew he wasn't supposed to meet with Russians prior to inauguration. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And so Gerson told Mueller that the transition team asked him not to meet with Dmitriev and that he did so as a private citizen for personal reasons That's only. such bullshit. Oh, they told me not to meet with him. It is. And I wonder how much that actually flies if they could. I mean, I imagine, you know, if they had those other missing pieces of evidence to actually charge any formal amount of coordination. And yeah, I, just feel more, like, but I just feel like the Mueller team guys are just sitting there like, <sighs> yeah. Totally. Mm. Freaking idiots. You think we're all dumb here. But they're not. They just know that they need a very Yeah, they don't have that evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So on the same day, Dmitriev asked Nader whether meeting with Prince was worthwhile. Dmitriev sent his bio to Gerson, asking him to send it to Kush. He also asked Gerson about Prince and if he was worthwhile. (laughs) Like I said, there's a lot of that going around. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Prince must be an immensely insecure guy, all these people asking if he's qualified. Uh, so here we just have Dimitri of looking for a dozen ways to penetrate the incoming administration. Uh, on January 16th, four days before inauguration, Dmitriev put together a plan for improving Russia-U.S. relations he and Gerson had been working on, and it had five main points. So the first point is fighting terrorism. Second point is anti-weapons of mass destruction efforts. Third point is win-win economic investment initiatives, mm-hmm. also read as making us rich. Yeah. Uh, number four, maintaining an open dialogue. Mm. Number five, open my ass. Yeah. That's, God. <laughs> That's private back channels of yeah. communication yeah, is exactly. what that means. Exactly. Uh, and number five being ensuring proper communications using key people from each country, which also screams back channel. And also screams like, don't send that Prince guy again. We hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, that totally. guy's a dick. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we added number five just after all these interactions. Um, so then on January 18th, Gerson gave a copy to Kush and explained to him who Dmitriev was. Kush then gave it to Bannon and Tillerson, but told Mueller neither of them followed up with him on it. On the 19th, the next day, Dmitriev sent a copy to Nader. So Gerson told Dmitriev he gave it to Kush, and a week later, Dmitriev told Gerson Putin wanted to know if anyone had given any feedback. Dmitriev said he didn't want to rush things, but that his boss was asking to have key U.S. meetings set up within two weeks. Dmitriev informed Gerson that Putin and Trump would speak by phone that Saturday and that the information was very confidential. Uh, So the Russians knew about the call well before we did. And Dmitriev wrote to Nader on July t- or January 28th to confirm Putin could use ideas from the document for the call, an apparent reference to the Trump-Putin call. Yeah, and also a question like, is it cool that Putin has seen this, that mm-hmm. I gave this to Putin? Mm-hmm. Okay, is that going to be cool? Yeah. Yeah, and then Nader said, definitely, it was submitted to team by Rick and me, and they took it seriously. So after the call, Gerson wrote to Dmitriev to say the call went well. And Dmitriev replied to that, uh, replied that the document they drafted played an important role. So then we're on to the part, we're on to part three on page 159 now. Uh, we're talking about Ambassador Kislyak's meeting with Jared Kushner and Flynn in Trump Tower following the election. So now we rewind back to November just after the election when Catherine Vargas, Kushner's assistant, um, I don't remember her name. No, she's new to me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a message for a meeting with Kislyak. She sent it to Kush saying, setting up a dime to meet with you. Oh, time. (laughs) That's my typo. (laughs) Setting up a dime. Dropping a dime, bro. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I feel like they wouldn't include that. (laughs) But maybe they would. Who knows? That would be a misquote, wouldn't it? So so setting setting up a time to meet with you on 12-1. 
Let me know how to proceed. Kushner responded in relevant part. Yeah, and and what I want I want to explain what that means. There's a longer email here, uh, but what Mueller is doing is he's picking out part of the email, saying Kushner responded in relevant part. Mm-hmm. Here's the relevant the part, part that of matters. The email. Yeah, right. But I want to know what else is in the email. Yeah. Uh, so Kushner let us decide what's relevant, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> So Kushner, Kushner says, I think I do this one. Confirm with Symes that this is the right guy. The right guy. Uh, did he not know Kislyak was a Russian ambassador? Vargas reached out and then reported back that this was indeed the right guy for routine matters and that Yuri Ushakov was the contact for more substantial matters. So meanwhile... That's weird because I, I hadn't heard, or I had, but I hadn't really registered the Yuri Ushakov yeah. name before. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting as the report goes on because he's mentioned a couple more times here. And, yeah. and I, I have some feelings about that. Totally. Well, there's got to be a bunch of names that were higher up and closer to Putin that they weren't directly involving in trying. Because so much of this is just trying to establish a connection, you know, so... There's a whole ring of people that were above, honestly, all the stuff that was happening. Yeah, but they might have or at actually, least on the ground. They might have actually had conversations with Yuri. Yeah, but we don't know. Yeah, but I don't, it doesn't come up. So, mm-hmm. but his name is brought up, and I again, Mueller doesn't bring shit up unless it's relevant. Because you got to remember, this report is actually a really tiny, tiny summary of millions of documents and emails mm-hmm. and evidence and grand jury materials and testimonies and. And and so if something's in here, it's because it's relevant to something. So he's bringing up Yuri Yushikov for a reason. And, yeah. And I just don't know what it is yet. Probably come back around later, huh? Um, so meanwhile, Forsman, that bank guy who tried to get Trump to speak at the economic forum in Russia, told the office that he told Flynn and KT McFarland that while Kislyak was important, he didn't have a direct line to Putin and Ushikov would be the official channel for the National Security Advisor. That's insane. What? Yeah. <laughs> I know. When I read that, I was like, that is why this Ushikov guy is important. And and I'll, I'll tell you now, and you might run into this again later, uh, but remember how Sullivan had ordered the Dowd voicemail be released? Mm-hmm. And he ordered that the transcripts of the Kislyak-Flynn conversations be released. And the government immediately said, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you can't have those. And Sullivan went, okay, which I didn't expect him to just roll over on. Mm-hmm. But there's talk about there being other conversations between Flynn and, and other people. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's not this Ushakov guy. Yeah. But it doesn't come up. That is pretty crazy, them being like, hey, this is going to be your freaking back channel, dude. Yeah. This is your direct line I mean, to Putin I know, as yeah. the national security advisor. Right. I know they say official channel, but I don't get the sense that they intended that to be through all of the proper protocols <laughs> that they're supposed to be going through. Um, so Forsman <laughs> told the office that Flynn did not ask him to undertake that inquiry in Russia, but said he felt obligated to report the information back to Flynn and that he tried to get a face-to-face meeting with Flynn in January so he could do so. Email suggests the meeting went forward, but Flynn has no recollection of it or the earlier December meeting. See, lies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That has to be a lie. Yeah. Uh, Then in parentheses, which I haven't seen yet, uh, Mueller says the investigation did not identify evidence of Flynn or Kush meeting with Ushikov after being given his name. And that footnote is from Kushner's assistance, FBI 302. Right. And so that was another thing that tipped me off is that he specifies that Flynn or Kush had didn't have a meeting with Ushikov after being given his name. Mm-hmm. Like, why 
Why would you put that in there? Can't you just say they didn't have a meeting with Ushakov? Yeah. It kind of reads like, so they didn't do anything wrong there. That's kind of how I read it. Yeah. But I don't know. I I just I've seen it said that like I feel like it would have stated that the investigation did not identify evidence of Flynn or Kush meeting with Ushakov. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the problem it would establish more you know guilt I guess if they had done it especially after they were given his name after being told he's a direct line to Putin. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Um. But even though Kush thought Kislyak wasn't the best point person, having been told he did not have a direct link to Putin, he met with Kislyak at Trump Tower on November 30th, 2016. Yeah, and it is conceivable, too, back to the Ushakov thing, uh-huh. that, you know, maybe maybe they did meet after being given his name and they just didn't have any evidence of it, destroyed all evidence of it, yeah. lied about it, or it's all under FISA stuff. But there's nothing redacted here in the report. So right. that leads me to believe that it's not somehow elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, so they set up a meeting uh, with Kislyak at Trump Tower November 30, 2016. Flynn also attended, and Bannon was invited but did not attend. So in the 30-minute meeting, Kush told Kislyak he wanted to repair Russian relations and asked Kislyak to identify the best person to have future discussions with. Ouch. Um, <laughs> it's like, because it's not you. Right, because yeah, people have already told him Kislyak ain't shit. Yeah, I think he was trying to find out Totally. Is this Ushakov the dude? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, someone who had contact with Putin is what he was looking for and the ability to speak on behalf of him. Uh, so they also discussed the U.S. policy towards Syria, and Kislyak proposed having Russian generals brief the team using a secure communications line. Mm-hmm. Flynn said there was no secure line to the transition team, so Kush asked if they could use secure facilities at the Russian embassy. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I remember when that story came out. Whoa. Kislyak quickly rejected that dumb fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, dude. Whoa. No. No. We can't have members of the transition team, namely the president-elect's son-in-law, come and use our embassy back-channel bat phone to talk to Putin. Are you fucking stupid? Oh like, that God. is just the most amazing... Because of Logan Act stuff. Yeah, and just because it's that's a really bad look, right? Secret meetings in the Russian embassy with oh, the son-in-law yeah. of the incoming president? No. Kislyak yes. was even like, no, no, no. you are stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't be dumb. And yeah. th- this could be what is keeping Kush out of jail right now, just that he's so dumb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't realize any of this is a problem. Seriously. He just had his eye on the prize, right? Of just getting to try to be I'm trying to get his good building, for Papa. Get yeah. his building paid off. <laughs> yeah, That's what yeah. I think he was trying to do. That's true. Um so now we're going to get back to Flynn in a minute because we know that you guys are dying to discuss his recorded conversations with Kislyak that the government still won't admit exists. And we have heard from Judge Sullivan, Flynn's lawyer, that there could be other conversations, which makes us think he spoke to the Ishikov fellow. But first, Mueller brings up Kushner's meeting with Sergei Gorkov on the top page of 161. So when we last left Kushner, he had decided Kislyak... When we last left <laughs> Yeah, I think it's soap opera. Uh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> he had decided Kislyak... <laughs> yeah, he's alone on an island. <laughs> what will he do? Uh, he had decided Kislyak wasn't the guy to meet because he didn't have a direct line of Putin. So in December, he turned down a few meetings with him. So Kush sent his underling, Avi Berkowitz, to meet with Kislyak instead. And they met on December 12th at Trump Tower for a few minutes. And Kislyak had the sads because he wanted to meet with Kush. (laughs) 
Uh, but Kislyak told Berkowitz that he wanted Kush to meet with Sergei Gorkov, who had a direct line to Putin and was the head of Vneshikonomum. Oh, God, hold on. V- Vne- Wait, Vneshikonom Bank. Yeah, Vneshikonom Bank. Yeah, V-E-B. Thank you. V-E-B. Jesus Christ. And, and it's doesn't fun this, once you get it. And doesn't this just sound like a bunch of dudes walking around saying, are you important? Are you important? No, you're not important enough. Are you important? Are you important? You're not important enough. And and just like testing each other's importance. And yeah. if, they, if they speak for Trump and Putin and... It just, it seems like they're all just kind of vetting each other, walking around, totally. to, trying to see who's important enough to set up a back channel with, or is this just a waste of time? Because they deal with guys like Carter Page and Papadopoulos, who are douchebag fuckfaces that can't get them shit, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like two kids in high school that are interested in each other, and all their underlings <laughs> that want to prove themselves and their worth to them are like, oh, I'll talk to her for you. Yeah, <laughs> going around. It's like, you <laughs> suck at this, dude. Uh, so Kush agreed to meet with Gorkov the next day, even though VEB was under sanctions imposed in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea. Kush didn't recall any discussion about sanctions against VEB during the meeting. Of course not. Yeah, or any Russian sanctions for that matter. No. Uh, Kush told the FBI that he didn't do any prep for the meeting. Nope. Nor did he or anyone on the transition team even Google Gorkov. Nope. But Berkowitz told Mueller he did Google Gorkov. <laughs> and I feel like you could find that information, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, during the meeting, Gorkov gave, like I would think Mueller could. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't know. During the meeting, Gorkov gave Kush a painting in a bag of dirt from Belarus. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Wouldn't that be funny before you knew what it was? Because uh, I think it's because Belarus is where Kush's family is from. Yeah. But just to, get, just to be handed a bag of dirt. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Here's a bag of dirt. Oh, okay. I wonder if it was like, oh. remember Cohen's bag of boxing gloves and a yeah. whatever? Like, I wonder if it was like just a, a plastic grocery bag yeah, of totally. dirt from Belarus. Yeah. So it's uh, it's uh, irradiated, so don't open it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Kushner's family's from there. I guess they thought that was, that's that's sweet. That's a nice love language that that guy has. And a painting. <laughs> yeah, and a painting. Oh, yeah, what is this? Is he being courted for marriage? <laughs> it's like family gifts. Well, because you got to know, like, finally, these, you know, Kislyak, eh, Prince, bleh, you know, but now you got Kushner and now you got Gorkov, mm-hmm. right? And Gorkov has a direct line to Putin and Kushner has a direct line to Trump. Totally. These are big dogs yeah, right definitely. so here's your bag of dirt for being not eric prince i yeah. guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and of course when asked about these meetings or this meeting kushner and gorkov's account of the meeting didn't match kush said they talked broadly about diplomatic stuff and how obama sucked at dealing with russia and kush said he most definitely did not mention how he was up to his ears in debt with his 666 fifth avenue building which we call the devil building for obvious reasons uh but veb made a public statement suggesting gorkov met with kush in his capacity as the ceo of kushner companies to discuss business and not diplomacy veb said this meeting was part of a series of roadshow meetings quote unquote which included negotiations and discussion of the most promising business lines and sectors yeah, the discussion of that $1.4 billion debt that uh, that Kushner mm-hmm. had on, on the devil building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then Forsman had a different take because he met with Gorkov and VEB Deputy Chair Nikolay Chimkomsky in Moscow before Gorkov went to America to meet with Kush. And they told him they were going to meet with Kush to discuss post-election issues with U.S. financial issues and that their trip was sanctioned by Putin. And they were instructed to report back to him after the meeting. Hmm. Mueller says at the top of page 163 that he could not resolve the conflict in the three stories, but there was no substantive follow-up after the meeting. 
But a few days after the meeting, Gorkov's assistant texted Kushner's assistant saying, Hi, please inform your side that the information about the meeting had a very positive response. End quote. Uh, there were a few other texts, but that was about the end of that communication. Then on to part five about Petr Avin's outreach efforts to the transition team. In December 2016, a few weeks after his face-to-face meeting with Putin, Petr Avin attended a meeting of all the oligarchs and <laughs> like all the king's all the king's horses and all the good stuff. Yeah, uh, and I'm and- sorry, but I have a typo with my thing autocorrected. Instead of Petr Avin, it's Pet Raven. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> and now I want to call him Pet Raven, Pet Raven from now on. Putin's Pet Raven. That's really are cool. Are we cool if we go that? As a Harry that. Potter vibe to it, I like it. Yeah, so are we cool if we move forward? <laughs> sure, going forward, Raven, can we call him yeah. the Pet Raven? I'm down. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so Pet Raven attended a meeting of all the <laughs> oligarchs in Putin, uh, in Putin, where the main topic of discussion was the prospect of new sanctions on Russia from the U.S. Uh, checks out. He then tried to reach out to Trump transition team. Tra- Trump transitions team. Fuck. Trump's transition team. <laughs> the triple T. <laughs> it's an awful, awful tongue twister. T-dow, T-bone, yeah. bone. I don't know. I don't uh, know what I'm <laughs> Yeah. So they tried to reach out to the team, instructing Richard Burt to contact them. So Burt worked with Avin, or Raven, uh, and was also on the board of Alpha Bank, where his main job was to facilitate introductions to business contacts in the U.S. and other Western countries. Hmm. Uh, while at a work meeting with Burt, Avin told Bert that people high up in the Russian government wanted to set up a communication channel between the Kremlin and the Trump team and asked him for contact info. Bert said that even though he established a lot of connections for Avin, this one was unusual and outside the normal realm of his dealings with Avin. If you'll, hey buddy, you doing okay? You're asking me to do something what? kind of intense. What? What's um, back, back channel? <laughs> yeah. Back, back channel? If you'll remember, Bert is also a member of the board of the Center for National Interest and approached Symes, the president of CNI, because he remembered Symes had a relationship with Kush. Bert called Symes and asked if he could set up a meeting with Kush to establish a back channel of communication between Putin and the Trump team. Symes told Mueller he declined and told Bert it wasn't a good idea in light of media attention. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Symes told Mueller he <clears throat> thought they're Bert, on to us. Yeah, <laughs> we have just calm down. Yeah, lay low for a second. Uh, Symes told Mueller he thought Bert was seeking a secret channel, and Symes didn't want CNI to be seen as an intermediary between the Russians and Trump. Oh, so he knew it was wrong, too. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, so Bert then sent an email to, a- to Avin that relayed what Symes had said, but indicated that they could pick it up again after the new year. But his wording is weird. He said, quote, through a trusted third party, I have reached out to the very influential person I mentioned, end quote. Bert told Mueller the very influential person was Symes, but that the trusted third party he just made up and no such person existed. Avin replied, quote, thank you, all clear, end quote. And Avin told Mueller that meant he didn't want the, re- the outreach to continue, even though Bert spoke to Avin sometime later about his attempt to make contact with the Trump team saying, quote, the current environment made it impossible, end quote, followed by a redacted bit for grand jury materials. That seems wrong. Mm-hmm. Thank you, all clear means this is over no yeah <laughs> i think it means go ahead yeah i don't know uh, okay um then it says burke did not recall discussing ovin's request with symes again nor did he recall speaking to anyone else about the request that makes it seem symes is under the redacted part so we'd put beans on him having testified to the grand jury we'll see maybe or not uh, <laughs> hopefully yeah. mostly because there are footnotes that symes had an interview with the fbi but there are no other Symes footnotes, just redacted grand jury footnotes. 
So in the first quarter of 2017, Avin met again with Putin and other Russian officials, and Putin asked about Avin's attempt to set up a back channel, and Avin told him it was a bust. Womp womp. Then there's a redacted sentence. Then it says, Putin continued to inquire about Avin's efforts to connect him to the Trump administration in several subsequent meetings. Yeah, and these are the, this is one of those quarterly giant oligarch Putin parties that they have, the mm-hmm. giant meetings, and Putin's like, what's going on? And he's like, I failed. Yeah. Dude, they probably have bomb-ass food there. Mm. God. Mm, yeah, I bet. I hate oligarchs, but I love how <clears throat> they dine. Yes, there's <laughs> a really great place called Pectapa Pomegranate on El Cajon Boulevard. Uh-huh. Oh, they have the best shashlik in mm. the whole universe. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Avin also told Putin's chief of staff that he had been subpoenaed by the FBI and that he'd been asked if he worked to create a back channel between Russia and the Trump administration. Avin told Mueller that he didn't seem to care. Uh, so then there's a brief section on Carter Page's contact with Deputy Prime Minister Arkady Arkady. Arkady I'm Dvorch. not sure how that's pronounced. Yeah, I don't know either. I'll say... Arcade. Arcade? Yeah. Ar- 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 Arkady Dvorkovich. Yeah, we just call him Dvorkovich. Yeah. At the top of page 166. In December, after the election, nearly two months after Page was fired from the Trump campaign, Page was in Moscow to pursue business opportunities. <laughs> Then there's a redacted sentence for grand jury information, but we uh, kick back in with Mueller telling us Kalimnik told him that Page was blabbing all over Moscow that he still had connections to Trump, which I imagine you would use if you're trying to get more business connections. It's kind of a, it is a good card to play. I it seems like a lot of folks stupid. were doing that anyway. Yeah. To sell, <laughs> to sell their access and knowledge or whatever totally. about Trump or to be like, you want to do an oil deal with me because I know Trump. Mm-hmm. I know how they work. Yeah. Kalimnik sent an email to Manafort about it saying, Carter Page is in Moscow today, sending messages that he's authorized to talk to Russia on behalf of DT on a range of issues of mutual interest, including Ukraine. So he got snitched on. That's a nice uh, way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. To be when you think about it. Uh-huh. And that's another, that's a pretty close connection between Kalimnik and Manafort, right? Just further establishing their ties. Uh, so while in Moscow, Page went to dinner with Shlomo Weber, who we know that guy, uh, who contacted the deputy prime minister, Dvorkovich, and invited him to the dinner. He showed up and congratulated Page on Trump's win and asked Page if he could connect him with the transition team. <laughs> Another one. Again. This is just a whole bunch of Russians <clears throat> trying to get access to the transition team through compromised douchebags, basically. Uh, then there's an entire redacted paragraph with one sentence in the middle we can read that says, Dvorkovich apparently discussed working together in the future by forming an academic partnership. We'll be school pals. Mm-hmm. And then that's the end of that. So Page is a stooge, a target, just like Kush and Papadoc, among others. Uh, page 167, we have a brief section on contacts with Flynn. Mueller tells us he was the conduit for communications between the Trump, san- Trump transition and Russian ambassador. Uh, I think this is a setup for the sanctions phone calls. It says Flynn dealt with two sensitive matters during the transition, including a U.N. Security Council vote and the upcoming U.S. sanctions for Russian interference in the election. As uh, to the sanctions, Flynn spoke by phone with Katie McFarland to prep for his call with Kislyak. McFarland was with Trump and other high-level officials at Mar-a-Lago when the uh, call came in. Mueller determined that Trump did not ask Flynn to speak to Kislyak about Russia's reaction to the sanctions, but Flynn did ask Kislyak not to escalate the situation in response to U.S. sanctions imposed December 29th. And Kislyak later reported to Flynn that the Russians listened. And they did. That's what happened. I think it's of note here that Mueller does not mention that these were phone calls. Uh, There are no redacted parts here. 
He only notes that Flynn pleaded, pleaded guilty to making false statements to the FBI, but the calls are themselves are not mentioned. But we know there are recordings of the calls, or at least transcripts, because Judge Sullivan, who's the judge presiding over Flynn's case, had asked for those transcripts to be released to the public. So the government objected, and Sullivan withdrew that order. But we did get the voicemail recording of Trump's attorney calling Flynn's attorney dangling a pardon and threatening him not to spill the beans to Mueller. Uh, So anyhow, Mueller wants to talk about the U.N. vote on Israeli settlements first and then starts at the bottom of page 167. So before Trump took office, but after he won, Egypt submitted a resolution to the U.N. Security Council calling on Israel to stop West Bank settlement activity. The vote was scheduled for the following day, December 22nd. There was speculation in the media that the Obama administration would not oppose the resolution, Flynn told the FBI that the Trump team regarded the vote as a significant issue and wanted to support Israel by opposing the resolution. On the day of the vote, apparently, Trump and his gaggle of douches reached out to other countries to find out how they were going to vote and to try to get them to support a delay of the vote until Trump was in power, knowing that Trump was going to oppose it. Uh, Kush led the effort on the transition team side, and Flynn was responsible for the Russian government. And here, Mueller says that morning, Flynn called Kislyak and asked that Russia oppose or delay. Later that day, Trump himself spoke with al-Sisi, Egypt's president, about the vote. Ultimately, Egypt postponed the vote. On December 23rd, Malaysia, New Zealand, Senegal, and Venezuela resubmitted the resolution. Throughout the day, members of the Trump team kept contacting countries to oppose the vote, but when Flynn spoke to Kislyak, Kislyak told him Russia would not oppose the resolution, and the resolution passed 14-0 to with the U.S. abstaining. Yeah, and this is... Before Trump took office. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Just want to make that like super clear. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, U.S. has always been a huge ally to Israel, regardless of what people want to say. We've been incredibly friendly to them, Mm -hmm. like all the time, pretty much with a lot of their Zionistic efforts. But that's all I'll say about that. Uh, then, (laughs) Then we get to the sanctions discussions on page 168. As we know, Obama signed the sanctions on December 28th and then expelled 35 Russians and closed two Russian compounds, all in response to Russian election interference. At the time, Trump, McFarlane, Bannon, and Priebus were at Mar-a-Lago, and Flynn was on vacay in the Dominican Republic, but was in daily contact with McFarland. Russia initiated the outreach when Kislyak texted Flynn December 28th, saying, Call me, bro. Uh, <laughs> Flynn didn't you respond. Up? Yeah, <laughs> Flynn did not respond that evening. Then someone from the Russian embassy called Flynn the next morning, but they did not talk. The sanctions were announced publicly December 29th, and that day McFarland emailed multiple transition team members about the impact of the sanctions, and a team member named Flaherty texted Flynn a New York Times article about the sanctions. These emails, uh, we presume, are the emails Mueller was able to obtain from the GSA, which is news that came out this week, huh? No, this was remember a long time ago when uh, the guy who Giuliani and Trump installed to be in charge of the GSA died. And when Mueller just went and asked for the transition emails from the GSA, they just handed them over. Yeah. And they were like, whoa. Yes. Like they totally forgot that their guy who was supposed to protect those emails just totally died. Yeah, totally. So I think that those are I think what am I these are those of? emails. What happened this week with the GSA? Oh, that's the FBI building uh, Hoover building debacle scandal where where Trump doesn't want the FBI to move out of that building because he's afraid a hotel will take over and it's right across the street and the GSA are the ones who that were were in charge of helping that move yeah yeah my bad 
nope that happens there's there's a lot I'm of a comedian <laughs> there's I, honestly and this is I, I, the only reason i know this is because i w- work in dc so totally oh, okay that makes sense um okay so later that night bannon told mcfarland that the sanctions would hurt trump's ability to repair relations with russia and mcfarland told bannon that kislyak and flynn were going to speak later that night so flynn told Mueller he didn't want to call kislyak about the sanctions until he spoke to the team at mar-a-lago he spoke with michael ledeen a transition team member he talked to mcfarland for about 20 minutes to discuss what to communicate to kislyak about the sanctions they talked about how the sanctions could hurt trump's goals and how they did not want Russia to escalate. And they both understood that Flynn would relay a message to Kislyak in hopes the situation wouldn't get out of hand. This is all according to Flynn. And given the current news with him, uh, we doubt pretty much anything that he said. So, <clears throat> Meaning like he's just sort of gone from cooperator from, to yeah. an, uh, an indicted co-conspirator. And, yeah. it, and he's got this new lawyer who's a fruitcake yeah and he's rolling back his guilty plea essentially like in, kind of in another, yeah but, but in the Bijan Kian stuff yeah but even yeah. today they're like no he's staying in it they want it they want huh. it both ways yeah um Oops. so anyway weird we'll see how it turns out but uh, yeah he's, he's definitely not the uh ally that the government thought he was yeah um so here Mueller says Flynn called and spoke with Kislyak and requested that Russia not escalate but only respond in a reciprocal manner Uh, Then this starts getting weird. McFarland told a bunch of transition members that Flynn was speaking to Kislyak. She had the convos with Bannon and Priebus and then sent an email to transition members. Less than an hour after that email, she briefed Trump, Bannon, Priebus, Spicer, and other team members. And according to McFarland, Trump asked her if the Russians did it, meaning did they interfere in the election? McFarland told him yes, and Trump (laughs) expressed doubt it was the Russians. I think that's a load of crap, right? And she just said that to, like, make it seem like Trump had no freaking idea that Russia interfered in the election, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's what I thought, too. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. Okay, Trump said, do you think the Russians did it? And I said, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, McFarland also said that Trump opined that sanctions provided him leverage with Russians, and she said they discussed potential Russian responses, and that if they were dicks, that would be an indicator of their relationship going forward. Uh, after the meeting, Flynn and McFarland talked on the phone, and he told her about his call with Kislyak and their discussions of the sanction. Uh, sanctions. According to McFarlane, Flynn said the Russian response was not going to be escalatory because they wanted to be best friends forever. Uh, <laughs> then the next day, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov said Russia would respond in kind to the sanctions. But two hours later, Putin released a statement saying Russia would not respond. Hours later, Trump tweeted, great move on delay by V. Putin. Shortly after that, Flynn sent an email to Kush, Bannon, Priebus, and others about his call with Kislyak, but it did not mention sanctions. Flynn told Mueller the reason he didn't mention sanctions was because it could be perceived as getting in the way of the Obama administration's foreign policy. Again, admitting that you can't do this shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so he knows what the Logan Act is, right? Um, as we know, Kislyak called Flynn and said his message was received at the highest levels of the Russian government. And Flynn told McFarland, who told Bannon and the rest, and McFarland congratulated Flynn. Mueller assures us here that there will be more on these sanctions discussed in Volume 2. So then I'd like to read the closing paragraph summarizing the Russian contacts on page 173. So here it is. 
In sum, the investigation established multiple links between Trump campaign officials and individuals tied to the Russian government. Those links included Russian offers of assistance to the campaign. In some instances, the campaign was receptive to the offer, while in other instances, the campaign officials shied away. Ultimately, the investigation did not establish the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Or there was collusion, but not criminal conspiracy, right? (laughs) In short. Yeah. Um, And so that wraps up the Russia contacts with the Trump campaign. And uh, it only took us like 10 hours to tell you about the summary of the work that Mueller did. So... Yes, very cool. Uh, very, uh, very cool. Very, very legal cool. and very, <laughs> very, very legal and very cool. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that is all of section B from part four. Uh, part five is next, and we'll we'll start that next week. We might be able to get through all of part five, uh, which are the prosecution and declination decisions. Basically, all of the stuff that he prosecuted and why, that. and all the shit he decided not to and why not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's pages 174 through 199. And I do hate to tell you this. There's a lot of redactions in there. Mm. Uh, mm. Womp, womp. <laughs> yeah. So we're not going to get all of our questions answered, uh, unfortunately. But thank you again for joining us and uh, listening to the Mueller report. It's very important that everybody kind of at least knows what's in it. And I hope that we're making it palatable and potable for you to digest. Um, and uh, we will see you. Well, if you're a patron, we'll see you in like five minutes because we're going to record the Daily Beans right after this. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, check us out Sunday night and then we'll be in Philly next week. So we'll see you then. I've been A.G. I've been Jordan Coburn. And this is Muller, She Wrote. Muller, She Wrote is produced and engineered by A.G. with editing and logo design by Jaleesa Johnson. Our marketing consultant and social media manager is Sarah Lee Steiner, and our subscriber and communications director is Jordan Coburn. Fact-checking and research by AG, and research assistance by Jaleesa Johnson and Jordan Coburn. Our merchandising managers are Sarah Lee Steiner and Sarah Hirschberger Valencia. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is MullerSheWrote.com. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA 
As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.